Hello and welcome to Reason for Hope. Once again, we're glad you're joining us or have stumbled upon our broadcast today. Reason for Hope is a Bible Q&A, a live Bible Q&A. That's right, we're live on multiple platforms and you can send in your questions on the Bible through the chat functions and all those platforms and we will be monitoring those and hopefully get to all your questions today on the show. So that's what we're all about here at Reason for Hope. So we're very glad that you're joining us as the viewer to provide the questions that create our content. So thank you. Um, we welcome any any honest question that you have on the Bible. It could be a verse or passage of scripture or maybe something you're going through in your life, something you've experienced, you'd like a biblical perspective, some biblical encouragement maybe, maybe even you know Christianity as a whole or other worldviews. Any honest question, as long as you know the Bible is the source for our answers on this show. Uh, that's what we're all about here at Reason for Hope. My name is Dave Robson and I will be hosting today and keep my eye on all those platforms as we go along with us today. We have Pastor Peter Martin with us once again. How are you doing? I'm good. Good to see you. Thanks for being here. We had a good show yesterday. Yeah. Just the two of us. Just two of us, man. Just me and you. Just, just the two it. of us. <laughs> we can do it if we try. <laughs> <sighs> Enough of that. And also with us, Pastor Sean Richards. Are you doing well? I was. He was. <laughs> the implications of that song. I did accomplish today's mission, though. You did? What was today's mission? Put a sticky note on a really nice car that said, sorry about the scratches, and I just watched him look for it. Oh, that is mean. That is very mean. Well, at least you didn't scratch the car. Nope. That would be extra mean, but I'm that not sure It was funny to watch. <laughs> I don't believe you for a second. Well, as I mentioned, <laughs> as I mentioned, a reason for hope as a live broadcast, we're with you Monday through Friday, 5 to 6 p.m. Mountain Standard Time. That's here in Tucson, Arizona, where we're broadcasting from. Don't be fooled by my accent. We are here in the Wild West, Tucson, Arizona. I'm going to do this presentation with my American accent. No, I'm not. I'm not going to do it. I'm going to try that. Um, of course, you can join us all around the world. It's an outreach of Calvary Christian Fellowship here in Tucson. Uh, so you can go to our website, calvarychristianfellowship.com. And we are streaming live there. If you go to that Watch Live tab, it will take you to our live page. Whenever we're live, uh, whether it's our services here or um, A Reason for Hope, like I say, Monday through Friday, um, we are live on that page. And uh, while you're at the website, uh, just don't be a stranger. You're welcome to click around and see. We have that events and sign up page right there. Lots of Bible studies and all kinds of things going on, support groups and good stuff so especially if you're in the tucson arizona area you're welcome to come check us out but for the purposes of tonight the watch live tab that'll take you to this page here which is ccftucson.online.church and we are live there right now you'll see the video of us and you can sign in with a username of your choice and then be part of the broadcast through the chat right there but when we're offline you'll see a countdown and you'll see that schedule of upcoming events and um we can see when this screenshot was taken back in december should probably update that huh Nah, it still looks the same. Anyway, that's ccftucson.online.church. I'll follow the link from the calvarychristianfellowship.com website. Don't laugh at me, Peter. I'm doing my best. <laughs> We're on Facebook as well, of course. Look for Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson. Look for that handsome man. That's our senior pastor here, Scott Richards. Uh, Facebook.com slash ccftucson is that direct link there on, uh, on Facebook. And we're live there. And, of course, there's a chat function, chat box, where you can interact with us as well. Don't forget to like and share. If you've been blessed by this ministry, we'd appreciate that. We'd love for you to invite your friends along. We have an app for your mobile device as well, whether it's iPhone or Android. Uh, go to your um, app store and look for Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson. There's that red background with the white Calvary Chapel Dove logo. That's our <laughs> app right there. I think there's a few Calvary Christian Fellowships around the, well, probably around the world. So look for that red background. 
the White Cavalry Chapel Dove logo. That's our app. And uh, you can watch us live on that and even listen to old messages and all that kind of stuff as well. And we have a channel on Roku and we have a channel on Apple TV. So if you have those devices or TV with those uh, capabilities, you can watch us there as well. Again, look for Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson in your channel store and add us as a channel. And we're on YouTube, of course. A Reason for Hope is the name of the channel there on YouTube. That's a great place to go for archives. You see that live tab right there. Anytime we've been live, you will see an archive of shows. So if you missed one or you just want to recap or check out one of our services here um, at Calvary Christian Fellowship, you can do all that right there on YouTube. And of course, we're live there right now. Don't forget to like and subscribe and share and click on the notification bell if you'd like a, a, a little reminder when we go live. All that's available for you on YouTube. And the aforementioned Pastor Scott Richards, who is our senior pastor here at Calvary Christian Fellowship. He's with us Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday. He is on Twitter. His handle is Scott R4H. That's at Scott R4H, letter R, number four, letter H. Um, he posts highlights from the show and uh, kind of commentary on world events. There's so much going on in the world, um, which is uh, uh, to do with uh, you know end times and prophecy and biblical things. And so he kind of commentates on that and some other bunnies and shenanigans too. So if you're on Twitter, uh, Scott Arthur H. Follow along with him right there. And we're, we're on Rumble as well. That's a newer to us thing. Look for a reason for hope Bible Q&A on Rumble. Uh, we put our archive videos there. We're working on whether we want to be able to go live there as well. But for now, it's just a place for archives if you're on that platform. And then last but not least, uh, our email address, questionsforhope at gmail.com. Questionsforhope spelled out at gmail.com. You can email us there, of course anytime and we get to those questions as well. If you're joining us on the radio, we're glad that you are, uh, but you're listening to the last show we did pre-recorded, so we're not live with you per se, uh, but use that email address and we will get to that question on our next show, questionsforhope at gmail.com. Well, with all that being said, before we go any further, we'd like to pause and pray. We know the severity of what we're trying to do here. <laughs> answer people's biblical questions no pressure on you guys uh, but we we love to pause and pray and ask for the lord to to bless it and guide it give us wisdom and all that good stuff so sean would you like to pray today okay <laughs> thank you that we have the chance to be in your word being your spirit as well equip us to not only communicate your heart but also to do so to your people to consider not only the audience that we're ministering to, but the source in which we're giving this information. Allow us to not only communicate accurately and freely, but also to do so in a way where you're ultimately honored. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Thank you, Sean. Um, well, yesterday, Peter, you and I, you were talking about Darwin, right? You gave a bit of an introduction there. Very yeah. interesting and informative. And you were going to carry on that talk today a little bit? Uh, well, kind of. So uh, on Mondays, me and Adrian have been going through some bad philosophers that move us to kind of our current cultural moment. Uh, but today, you know, me and Sean tend to like to do apologetics days where we take a category or a thought and we break it down in a little bit more intricate detail than we would normally do if we were just getting the question in our normal queue. So since we were talking about Darwin yesterday, I thought it might be cool to go through some of the issues with Darwin's theory. Uh, now, to Darwin's credit, he actually talks about them in his own book. So Darwin was a pretty meticulous scientist, and one of the fundamental premises of science is that it has to be something that could be proven wrong. Otherwise, it's not science. So Darwin, in his 
seminal book, which is On the Origin of Species, he takes the first couple chapters to define what it is, and then he starts to make inferences to what it could be, and then he starts to talk about what could be wrong with it, right? Uh, different issues that people might have with his theory, and he's pretty meticulous about it. So real quick, uh, even though I feel like most people know what his theory is, I'm going to give a brief recap. So Darwin's theory of natural selection is that over time, kinds of animals develop variations in response to nature. So up until Darwin's time, people knew that different species could be developed through, say, crossbreeding, right? You could take one type of animal and you could breed out certain unlike, uh, not very likely characteristics and bring the animal more into regard of what you would like. So through like sexual selection and things like that, that's how you get all these different variations of domesticated dogs that we have everywhere is through breeding, intentional breeding to bring about certain characteristics and diminish others. What Darwin suggested is that there might be a way that nature itself, although it's unguided, could select for varieties within a kind. And over time, those varieties could become big enough to constitute a difference in species, right? So that's the argument that he's making. What we talked about yesterday is that most people don't know that Darwin never argued for where the origin of life comes from. In fact, this is a quote from later on in The Origin of Species. He says this, I believe that animals have descended from at most only four or five progenitors and plants from an equal or lesser number. Analogy would lead me one step further, namely to the belief that animals and plants have descended from some one prototype, but analogy may be a deceitful guide. And later on, he says uh, that these organic beings which have lived on the earth have descended from some one primordial form into which life was first breathed by the creator. So you see him giving acknowledgement that life had to have begun from some divine origin. Now, in modern times, most people who characterize Darwin's theory suggest that what he was arguing for was an origin of life. But that's actually not what he was arguing for. In his own book, he says he's not arguing for that. Now, we're going to get into the big problems with that, right? Uh, how the origin of life is something that uh, it, it looks increasingly like they're never going to be able to get anywhere near uh, a proof for that. And we'll talk about some people who actually like Darwin uh, who are not big fans of that type of theory. But for now, let's get into Darwin's own problems with his own theory. Now, throughout the book, he gives a lot of haphazard answers to these questions. And the reason why is because he intended this book to be something that stirred dialogue. He didn't want it to be like the end all be all, this is the truth and just believe it. He wanted different scientists to kind of poke holes in his theory and to show why they believed it was right versus why they believed it was wrong. So he does give very strong arguments against his own theory. Now, the first one that he gives, which actually I didn't even think about until I started reading his book and it seems so obvious, uh, he mentions that there are no transitional species alive today. Now, this is a problem and it's a big problem. So remember what I said, what he proved definitively is that varieties within kinds can happen through natural processes. He theorizes that this same mechanism might cause one kind of animal to evolve into another kind of animal. He never proved that, by the way. This is just part of his theory. Now, in order for that to be true, though, it would be expected, and he admits this, that you would find a transitional animal somewhere, right? So an animal that is between one kind of animal and another. And not just one, but 
millions upon millions. Should be a lot. Literally blanketing an entire strata, if not all of them, to show the gradual process in which the original progenitors, of which he assumed four, turned into what we see today, a very gradual, a very millions by millions of years process, yet we have yet to find one. Yeah, and that's, that's a huge problem. So Sean's just actually given uh, another even bigger problem, which is that in the geological record, we don't have a single example of a transitional fossil, which you should expect to see, and we'll talk about that more in a second. We have but, artwork that was predicated on fraud yeah. that says it was, and then yeah. we found out it was just a pig's tooth. Yeah, <laughs> and we have a couple of false discoveries, which we'll talk about in a second as well. Because I, you know, in school, in public school, I learned about these supposed discoveries of transitional fossils as if they were facts. Um, little did I know that at the time I was learning this in school, they had been long debunked, right? So not even like recently debunked, they had been debunked for a long time, and yet it's still in textbooks in public school. So we'll talk a little bit about those in a second. I'm becoming but, more American. Is that the same thing that you're yeah, talking about? Yeah, transitional. Yeah. You've transitioned. Right. <laughs> from, I'm, well, um, I'm in the... I mean, you know, because I feel like British people are a different kind of, of animal than the, uh, the American, for sure. I mean. Thank you for calling me an animal. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, so at any rate, his problem here is that you should see, like, why, w since this process is happening all the time, why wouldn't I discover a living animal that is a transitional animal? So something that is between two types of animals, uh, two dip uh, types of kinds of animals. That's something that we don't see anywhere. Now, Darwin says, because at his time, he had limited resources. He just did a voyage around the world. And so it's not like he could see all the different animals. So he theorized that eventually we would find one. It is a big problem for his theory. It doesn't defeat his theory, but it is a very big problem with his theory that there's not a single living transitional animal alive today. We should find at least one, even if it's an insect or a bacteria, we should find some form of life that is transitioning from one kind of animal to another. We don't find it. That's a big, big problem for his theory. Uh, the second problem, anything you want to add to that? All right, second big problem for his theory, and we're going to get more into this when we talk about Michael Behe. Uh, this is a quote from his book, It is Organs with Extreme Perfection. So this is again from On the Origin of Species. This is Darwin speaking. To suppose that the eye, with all of its in inimitable contrivances for adjusting the focus to different distances, for admitting different amounts of light, and for the correction of spherical and chromatic aberration, could have formed, you can tell this guy's a scientist, it's just so boring, and but anyway, uh, could have formed by natural selection seems, I freely confess, absurd in the highest possible degree. Okay, so he admits, he's like, the eye looks really, really complicated, and it doesn't look like it could have formed gradually over time, and it kind of stumps me a little bit. Now, he theorizes, and this is a big problem with this theory that uh, we'll talk about Michael Behe in a second. He theorized that as things become smaller, they become simpler. And therefore, while we can't really discover how sight works, there might be a primitive form of the ocular nerve. This is what he says in his writings. There might be a primitive form of the ocular nerve that develops into what we have as an eye, right, as man. The problem with it is that when things get smaller, do they get simpler? No, in fact, just the opposite. When we're talking about, and this will tie into the title of B.E.'s book, but the idea of the simple primordial soup that we all oozed out from the goo to you by way of the zoo, the infantile to the fertile to the gentile, you get the sloganeering. The 
crux of their argument, pun intended, is to make the assumption that the simple will inevitably become more complex, that the tiny cell that learns how to divide itself by chance will eventually continue to do those processes until along the way it learns to do something else, to learn to do something else, and so on and so forth. This is the bread and butter of abiogenesis macroevolution, the dogmatically enforced view of our origins in any major Western school. Now, when we look at that assumption that the idea of us starting at a simple single-cell organism first is not only a historical claim, not a scientific or an observable one, but it fundamentally misrepresents what we now know as a cell. Because if you have done any research into microbiology, you know there's entire fields of engineering that literally design for example, underwater propellers based off of the way that our little squigglies move around in our stomachs called biomimetics. It is so advanced that we design our machines off of it because it functions so well. Now, you can make the worldview-based assumption that, well, of course, these things evolved. I mean, we're just observing something that happened to go right, which is an assumption of your conclusion, not a proof. If you go at it from the other angle and say, no, show me the base life form, the black box, if you will, the assumption that the tiny means the simple, you just have to look at your computer's motherboard to know that small doesn't mean simple. Right. It just means small. It's beyond your sight in some ways. But if we take a look at biology, functional life, not in theory, but in actual existence, all of the Which evidence... Darwin that, wouldn't yeah. have known anything about. Yeah, and he didn't have to. He didn't make the claim, but people will put it on that assumption, right. the authority that just doesn't hold weight, unless, like the world we're living in today, you censor everyone who says otherwise, which we don't buy. Right. So uh, the title of the book that I keep referencing is um, Darwin's Black Box by Dr. Michael Behe, uh, The Biochemical Challenge to Evolution. So he is a biochemist, and again, he's not coming at it as a Christian. He's not even coming at it as someone who believes in a 10,000-year-old young earth, as Sean and I do, as well as Dave, he's coming at it as someone who actually does believe virtually what I just read from Darwin himself, that there might have been a couple or one base life that was seeded by a creator God, and then from there we get to the place that we're at today. So this is, in his words, uh, what biochemistry is and how it challenges the theory that life could have originated and de developed from simplicity to complexity. So this is his definition of biochemistry. Biochemistry is the study of the very basis of life, the molecules that make up cells and tissues that catalyze the chemical reactions of a digestion, photosynthesis, immunity, and more. Okay, so why is that so important in disputing Darwin's theory? Well, as again, from his book, it was once expected that the basis of life would be exceedingly simple. That expectation has been smashed. Vision, motion, and other biological functions have proven to be no less sophisticated than television cameras and automobiles. As Sean said, we are actually designing uh, machines off of these systems because of how unbelievably complex they are. Science has made enormous progress in understanding how the chemistry of life works, but the elegance and complexity of biological systems at the molecular, molecular level have paralyzed science's attempts to explain their origin. Now, he goes on from there and gives example after example 
after example, of these little microsystems that work with incredibly uh, incredible complexity that he just shows there's no way these things came about on their own. There's absolutely no way that they developed into what we would call quote unquote more complex systems because they're already incredibly complex in and of themselves. But Darwin's problems don't end there. He actually makes another admission that he didn't think anyone would be able to disprove and Michael Behe spends an entire section of his book disproving this. Uh, this is again from On the Origin of Species. Let this process, the process of natural selection and variations within kinds, go on for millions on millions of years, and during each year on millions of individuals of many kinds. And may we not believe that a living optical instrument might thus be formed as superior to one of glass, as the works of the Creator are to those of man, if it could be demonstrated that any complex organ existed which could not possibly have been formed by numerous successive slight modifications, my theory would absolutely break down. But I can find no such case. Okay, so what's he talking about? In modern days, what Michael Behe calls it is a system of irreducible complexity. So this is a complicated system that you can't reduce down. You can't make it more simple without destroying its usage. So uh, the example that he uses is like a mousetrap. So if you have a mousetrap, you have something that's kind of simple, but it's irreducible, right? You have a spring mechanism, you have a actual bracket mechanism, and you have the wooden block. If you were to remove any of those one pieces from the mousetrap or reduce any of those one pieces, you don't have anything. Hmm. You, got, you got nothing. You take away the block of wood, you just got a spring and a bracket, and that's not gonna do anything. If you take away the spring, you just got a bracket on a piece of wood. You take away the bracket, you just got a spring that's not gonna release anything on a piece of wood. So, yeah. it, it, again, if you reduce it down, it, it's, it's nothing. So what he's saying, if, if you could find a system like that, some sort of a complicated system that has to work in cohesion to one another, that you can't reduce any of the parts down, otherwise the system doesn't work at all, it completely debunks his theory. Well, Mike Behe lists thing after thing after thing after thing that does this. One of the ones that Sean loosely alluded to is called the bacterial flagellum. It's this little bacteria that could actually swim through liquids like plasma and things like that at such a rate that I can't remember the exact statistic that he gave in the book, but it's something to the effect of the equivalent would be an Olympic swimmer having to go like a mile in every five minutes through peanut butter or something like that. that that's how fast this motor is able to propel this little guy, mm. right? And when you look at the motor, it is a motor, right? It looks mm. like a motor. It looks like something that's incredibly complex, something that we would be hard pressed to create something even remotely similar or better. I mean, mm. look at how much work we're trying to expand right now as people trying to create a more efficient motor to propel our vehicles. Yeah. Uh, here you have this, simple single-celled organism, this bacteria, that has a motor more complex than what, what a lot of people have under their car, right? That's really incredible to think about. That's an irreducibly complex system, and according to Darwin himself, that debunks his theory, right? It makes it impossible. Mm. Um, anything else you'd like to add or clarify on that? Well, and I guess just a little side comment here. It's going to be common when you hear all of these evidences and these examples that if you're on the side of the creationist or the intelligent design pro position, that you just, you know, take it all loosely and say, oh, well, I'm glad I chose the right team. And that people who are against this are just going to hear us loosely, dismiss it all and say, well, they're not experts in these fields. My guys, I'm sure, have a better response 
response to this if they were here. We're not here to indoctrinate you or to basically solidify you in a position that you haven't thought through. The only reason that we're bringing this up is because it's brought up as a personal objection and excuse for very plain and simple truths that conflict with statements that are just made as if they are fact. And you see the hard-heartedness behind this that we don't want you to model in people. I'm sure you know one of these individuals' names. Richard Dawkins, in his book, The Blind Watchmaker, stated, quote, Biology is the study of complicated things that give the appearance of having been designed for a purpose. They'll acknowledge that these things are irreducibly complex. They'll acknowledge that there is a design here, but the worldview prevents them from acknowledging the assumption that's necessary for a mousetrap, that someone designed those things to work in that way. Francis Crick likewise repeated the statement where he told biologists, quote, we must constantly keep in mind that what we see was not designed, but rather evolved. We don't want you to take in this information loosely and say, I'm glad I'm right, or people to take in this information loosely and go, I know they're wrong. We want you to be aware that there is a worldview that is being used, one of many, whether it's you know cult groups like Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormons, whether it's false religions like Muslims or Hindus, whether it's false worldviews and narratives like macroevolution. We want you to be able to take all this information and go, where is the mistake? What mistake could I be making? And if the hard-heartedness of man's attempts to dismiss God goes so intensely in this one direction, if you're feeling a heart that says, there's something wrong with that, understand that the Holy Spirit could be calling an open door of ministry for you. But study first. That's the purpose of apologetics, is being able to give a defense, and defense requires knowing your opponent's strategies. If these designs do, in fact, lead to a conclusion, understand why that is. Understand that the fact that these things have an appearance of design, the simplest answer is probably the most correct, then it probably was. By who and for what purpose? And what purpose is it being used or reused or abused even today? But make sure that we're not getting into that, I guess, neutral mode of saying, well, these guys will do the research. I'll just believe what they're saying because it sounds too much, uh, I guess, in the syllable department for me to follow. If you're not called to this area, fine. But understand as well, if you're asking questions, that's an opportunity to seek better answers. Don't dismiss that whether you're for or against these conclusions. Yeah. Um, yeah, so... A couple last ones that are interesting. In chapter 7 of his book, he talks about instinct. Now, instinct is a big problem for him because <clears throat> he mentions the bee. Now, the bee makes honeycombs within their hive that are so geometrically perfect that some of his friends who were architects said, we'd be hard-pressed to replicate this. Now, where did that instinct come from, right? To build something that complex, it obviously doesn't have intelligence. They're not actually drawing up plans and blueprints and thinking it out. They're doing this all based on instinct. How does that happen? He gives a really weak answer. He basically says, well, there's a couple instincts that if you put them together, you get these kind of geometric shapes. It's like, great, but you still haven't told Who's us putting where the them instinct. there. <laughs> yeah, you didn't tell us where the instinct came from. He says that habit can produce instinct, but the problem is that if you get to these lower animals, they don't have habits, right? They're not intelligent enough to form habits. 
And so therefore they can't, the habits can't turn into instinct. So for instance, it's like, how did a tree garner the instincts to let its roots go deep to look for water, right? There's no way that it could have, there's no intelligence that would allow it to do that. They would just all die out if they weren't able to do that right off the bat. How do these um, birds cross over distances farther than most of our planes are capable of navigating consistently across generations without explaining to their little chicks, okay, here's a map. When you get past the jet stream, you want to turn lights <laughs> to the left. It's not explainable within biology itself. There right. has to be something more than just what's observed. Right. Uh, last two kind of problems. Uh, hybridism, he mentions how once you start uh, trying to breed animals from different kinds, so if I tried to create an unholy abomination of a dog and a cat, uh, I couldn't do it, right? It, they would not be able to procreate. I might, if I'm sick enough, get them to actually mate, but they're not gonna procreate anything as a result of that mating. Uh, the reason why is because their genetics just won't allow for it. Now, a big problem with this theory is that, think about it, how did evolution happen? Well, you had to have these transitional stages, these transitional animals mating with the original animals that they're descended from. The problem is, is that they would, at best, create something like a mule, which is a horse and a donkey hybrid. Problem with mules is you can't actually procreate mules. There's not a third type between the horse and the mule that would then lead to another chain. There so, is a line between a equine, right. literally, and a feline. Right. Exactly. And so the, the mule is sterile, just on its basis, because, yeah. again, it's, it's not close enough to be able to procreate on its own. So, again, it's, it's a huge problem for his theory. Uh, the next problem that I could go over would be the geological record, which Sean already mentioned. And in the descent of man, now this is where it gets kind of important and yeah. why we as Christians need to be very careful about this type of theory. It's a very attractive theory for a lot of, even uh, as Sean said, a lot of believers uh, are tempted to want to believe in this theory because it helps them uh, feel as though they're in kind of the vogue, right? What's going on and what's popular right now. It, and they're taught it as if it's a fact. And it, so it, it eliminates unnecessary arguments and allows them for a more open door to evangelism. But as you can probably read throughout scripture, the mark of a false prophet is good intentions and wanting the praise of men. We don't want that. Absolutely. And so uh, with all the problems that we've just given with it on its base level, the, the big problem is in the descent of man, Darwin makes a pretty compelling argument for how this theory defeats what we would call objective morality and objective aesthetics. So uh, now the problem, the reason why he says it defeats objective morality and ethics is because, again, if we believe that God has created the world to exist like this, we have to believe in a God that has created a world of chaos, disorder, death, and destruction, mm -hmm. because that's how we got from the beginning to the end. Darwin's theory depends upon a mechanism of evolution that has to be based within suffering, warfare, and death, right? Mm -hmm. That's the only way you get from the single-celled organism to the more complex organisms is through lots and lots of death and fighting within those species and extinction of the species that came before it. Mm -hmm. What that means is that all morality and ethics are completely subjective because different animals develop different ethical systems to survive in their given environment. Why should man be any different, right? Now, some Christians give some answers to that. Well, we were specially created. Everything else evolved, but we were specially created. Okay, great. That's still not a very good answer for multiple reasons I'm not going to get into right now. But base problem is, again, you're having to put your faith in a system in which the problem of suffering is actually not a problem at all. Suffering is the basis for how life got from original state to complexity. So you can't really look at it as a bad thing. This is, again, what, one of the reasons why C.S. Lewis left his atheism, 
is because he was bothered by evil and suffering, but he believed in a system that said that evil and suffering is how we got from A to B. And he couldn't accept that, right? He couldn't understand why he was so disturbed by the very thing that brought about his uh, evolution. Uh, and theism was the only thing that gave him an answer to that. There was an original state in which there was no suffering and death, and then sin entered the creation, and through sin entered death, right? That's what Paul says in Romans chapter 5. To believe in evolution, the millions and millions of years that we would need for evolution to be true, you have to believe in evil, suffering, and death pre-sin. That's kind of a big problem, right? It's a big problem for how we, uh, how we conceptualize evil, how we conceptualize suffering, how we conceptualize ethics. I'm not saying that faithful Christians haven't made valiant efforts to try to, co uh, to make those things work at the same time. It's just very difficult, and they're not very logically consistent. So um, anything else that you'd like to add or clarify on that? No, I think we can get into the questions, but again, to repeat points so that they're remembered. When we're talking about this issue, understand it's a very emotionally invested and rooted issue, not in intellectualism, but in community and familiarity. So you're going to have to break through a lot of barriers, and sometimes, uh, speaking from experience in my landscaping days, the only way to break through a hard surface is to hit it really hard several times in the same place. Don't get frustrated if the plain statement of the facts doesn't seem to convince them there might be some things going on beneath the surface. But understand as well, the Holy Spirit's the one who changes hearts and minds. We just have the opportunity to answer for what we did with the information we have. Darwin's theory, according to Darwin, has a lot of problems with it, and even if, much like with many things, we look at the evolution theory that is uh, proposed in his name today, he wouldn't recognize it. Mm. But if, on the other hand, we were to compare it to the Jesus that was practiced today and the, Christ, or the Christianity that's practiced today and the one that Jesus demonstrated, we actually have evidence. We have a literal and figurative paper trail of what was taught, what was claimed, and what was affirmed, and that includes Genesis 1. Amen. Excellent. Yeah. All right. All right. Let's Thank get you. into it, man. Thank you for sharing that. <laughs> Very informative and good. Well, Talking of death and disease and <laughs> chaos, there's a, a um, I'm not talking about the show, I'm talking about a question from Trent here, I'm trying to do a nice, uh, you know, segue. Uh, Trent asks, if God, there's a lot to this question, you guys are gonna, you guys are gonna tell us. two things. Jump, you know, jump all over it. Yeah. If God creates, it's a great question. If God created everything, why did he create AIDS, influenza, Ebola, COVID-19, E. coli, and so on and so on? Uh, these as viruses are living things. Um, is this another part of God's plan? Did viruses have another purpose before the fall? So that's Trent's question today. Thank you, Trent. I think that last question actually answers it. Uh, I, again, I don't know all the semantics behind all of those diseases, but two in particular I can speak a little bit about, so let me try. If uh, there's any epidemiologists in the chat, you can correct me. But I think E. coli is a first good example of something serving a purpose before the fall that would explain a lot of why diseases are hazardous to us, but could have served a new purpose. Mm. E. coli is not dangerous until it's in the wrong place. 
there's this thing called bacterial fauna or intestinal fauna, which is certain kinds of bacteria that are supposed to be in your guts. And they perform roles in things like digestion and even helping your immune system sort out other things that are familiar to them without necessarily messing up anything in the process. It's, um, there's three kinds of ways that multiple organisms live together. There's communalism, where both parties benefit. There's symbiosis, where they're both just kind of there. And there's parasites, which one benefits, one suffers. Mm. We have E. coli in our bodies right now. The problem is when they either get too far or too involved in other organs, or at least in places in those organs where they shouldn't be, that their reproductive patterns end up causing us to vomit up everything we had since we were four so the point being made is uh, sorry for the image but it's true when we're talking about feels at the time yeah that's the point is it's not the wrong thing it's the wrong place doing the right thing but in the wrong way mm. and that's oftentimes in many cases the definition of evil it's misfulfilled purposes or misapplied good things yeah. pursuing good in the wrong way um covid19 i think is another example of things like AIDS. Uh, I don't know what the original <laughs> strain was, but COVID-19 has a number after it because the coronavirus, as we know it, is named corona because it looks like a little ball sphere with a bunch of spikes and balls coming off of it because it looks like the sun's corona, the life emanating off of it. We've had 19 strains that have had any relevance to human beings that we've developed immunities to. Sorry if that uh, upsets Fauci fans. But when we come to the point of basically mutating and reproducing in order to survive against the immunizations that we formed, all these little griblies are trying to do is make babies. Um, they do it a little differently than we do, but of course that's just what it's doing. How it does that and the rapidity in which it produces babies and the way it impacts your body ends up causing damage along the way and our body tries to fight back to that because there's only room in this town for two eukaryotes, you know what I mean? So. The, Look it up if you don't know what eukaryote means. But the point being made is just that. The foundation of evil in Scripture is just things doing good things, but in the wrong way or in the wrong places or at the wrong times. Note it's not every definition, but it is a way in which those viruses can be understood. They had an original purpose. They have a place. The point is it's not in you. And an aspect of the fall, this is conjecture, not fact, not scripture. I'm not quoting chapter and verse. Understand it as an opinion. But the fact that these uh, little things were, yes, created by God, they did in fact exist, but they show horrible effects when inside of us, that leads me to a conclusion. Maybe they weren't created to be inside of us, <laughs> and the free spread of these things is an aspect of the fall. Now, is that true? I couldn't give you direct chapter and verse. I could maybe infer aspects of Romans chapter 8 and noting that all of creation groans and labors and travails in pain, waiting for our redemption, that is the sons of God, human beings, you and me. Sorry, Michael Heiser fans. But the point being made is just that when these organisms are just trying to reproduce, they cause damage when it's done in our bodies or in E. coli's case, in different parts of our bodies. It's a lot simpler than it's made out to be. The problem, I think, is just that scientists give it all big names, so we run away. I don't blame you. I can't spell it. But the point being made is just that. If we're going to ask, why did God create them if they only serve evil? Well, they, they do serve good. It's just not in you. 
Yeah, I mean that that's just a it's a smaller problem. Like your your uh, your question is aimed at one particular form of life as problematic for humans, but you haven't really wrestled with the fact that all of creation is in a fallen state. So again, this is a quote from On the Origin of Species. Finally, it may not be a logical deduction, but to my imagination, it is far more satisfactory to look at such instincts as the young cuckoo ejecting its foster brothers, ants making slaves of their larvae, feeding within the live bodies of caterpillars, not as especially endowed of created instincts, but as small consequences of one general law, leading to the advancement of all organic beings, namely, multiply, vary, let the strongest live and the weakest die. So when Darwin looked at the created order, he saw that this is what you're going to observe, right? You look at any ecosystem of animals. You look at the weak being killed by the strong, eaten by the strong in various ways. Uh, and they're brutal, right? He talks about them like planting eggs inside of living things and they're eating their way out. He's talking about ants literally making slaves of other insects in order to do what they need. Cuckoos ejecting their foster brothers out of the, like literally kicking them out of the nest so they yeah. fall to their death, right? So he's saying that like these are what you observe when you look at, at when you look at creation. Now, how do we feel about that? And this is what C.S. Lewis's point was. He's like, when I look at that, whether it's in the animal kingdom or things that affect me, right, which is what viruses do, they affect me, but they also affect animals, right? <laughs> it's, a, it's the problem that we use. Yeah, they, they affect some animals. But you, you got to look at it and be like, why am I bothered by that? Mm. And the fact that we're bothered by it, like if you ever see an animal devouring another animal, there's usually something in you that's like, I don't like that, right? There's yeah. something there's something disturbing about it. And the reason why you're disturbed about it, even though it's natural, quote unquote, is because you know that it's actually not natural, that there's something not good about it, that this yeah. is not how the creation ought to be. That's a result of your sin and my sin. As Sean said, these things are just trying to live They've just been mutated, I believe, by the fall to a place where they live on the subsistence of something else, right? So their their life, their their existence within me in the wrong place kills me, right? That's something that's wrong with the created order, though. And that's a result of we as Christians answer that by saying that's the fall. So the problem isn't with the creature, right? The problem isn't with the ant. The problem is with something that's gone wrong in the system of the ant mm. where that becomes necessary to its survival. Uh, Darwin, I think this is kind of interesting because he seems to be a bit of an animal lover. He, they actually tried to take these ants that enslave other insects because they just found it like so interesting but also so gross that this is what they literally did in order to live. And they try to move these ants away from the insects that they were enslaving and they just died. And mm. he realized that they had developed in such a way where they couldn't live without enslaving inferior insects. Yeah. So again, what his point is, is I've that- i people like that. Yeah, yeah, you know. <laughs> Teenagers, yeah. <laughs> yes, uh, I am the inferior <laughs> insect to my children. That's exactly correct. And they couldn't live <laughs> without right. enslaving my you. My gosh, that is, I was joking, but I think, it's, I think it might be true. Anyway, carry it's on. so profound. <laughs> no. uh, but anyway, yeah, so that's, that's a fallenness. And it's okay for us to look at that and say, there's something wrong with this. And uh, Paul even points out in Romans 8, uh, Sean was loosely quoting it, that this futility that we see within the created order ought to call us to God, right? It ought to move our hearts and say, there's something wrong with the world. There's something very wrong that these things happen and occur. This is, by the way, one of the reasons why Jesus healed people 
right? When he was going around healing people, and Scott's point out many times, hey, these people all died. You know, <laughs> like it's yeah. great. They did all these amazing miracles, but they all died. They're all moldering in the grave at this point. Yeah. The point of the miracle was not to just prolong their life a little bit. The point of the miracles was for Jesus to show the kingdom of heaven, right? What is God's kingdom like? God's kingdom is life everlasting, right? No yeah. sickness, no death. He's trying to show people, he's giving them a foretaste of what the kingdom of heaven is, the, the place he comes from, and that is that everything is as it ought to be, right? No sickness, no death, no pain, no suffering. Yeah. Everything is put in its right and proper place. And there are many passages in the Old Testament that talk about the Messiah's second coming. Um, at the time, it didn't give the distinction between first and second coming, but the Messiah's coming would actually put the created animal, <laughs> animal existence back into order where kids can play with vipers and a lion will mm -hmm. lay down with a lamb, right? This is clearly a sign that when Jesus comes back, the animal kingdom mm -hmm. will be put back in, in the right order, where no longer will organisms live off of other organisms, mm -hmm. right? By surviving, by, by killing them. That the, law, the lion will eat straw like the oxen and so forth. Read ele Isaiah 11. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. All right. Well, Trent, thank you for that question. I hope that helps you out. A uh, question from Kat. Uh, did Adam and Eve know about all of God's creation or just part of it? Were they able to see beyond the Garden of Eden? Mm -hmm. Did they know about things like whales, bacteria, Antarctica, etc.? It seemed like very, three very random things. <laughs> but yeah, did Adam and Eve know about more of creation? Could they see beyond? They knew what they needed to to have fellowship with God. When mm -hmm. that was severed, everything fell apart. I think the best way to take it is that God told them to exercise dominion. Uh, to rule over creation. That includes Antarctica, that includes the bacteria, that includes everything. And Adam having enough competence not just to name every creature, but according to its kind, literally be a zoologist by modern terms. So yeah, they had enough knowledge, but if you're uh, looking for an extensive medical, biological, and uh, topographical record given by Papa Adam, that's not available to us. I think it would be a waste of time to infer that. But if you want to know what they did know, they knew God, and God knew about all those things. So if they needed to know, they'd have access to that information. Yeah, so Sean said, we, we just don't know. Right? We, we have no clue the extent of their knowledge of the created order. We, we know we can infer certain things from Adam's intelligence, but we just don't know. I, th I think it would be interesting if, uh, I mean, you can infer pretty readily that, again, this is because of Darwin, there's this idea of like, slow adaptations over time, uh, societies evolve. So in modern days, there's this real arrogance towards ancient civilizations of, oh, these primitive people, they didn't know anything. And so we, we infer the caveman, right? That the original man were really dumb and they just, you know, had caves and they oohed and awed and made fire somehow and all this stuff. But when we you were getting there, there right. but I don't think we were like right. that. They had to figure out a lot of weird stuff really quickly in order to survive. Right. So one thing that's really interesting is how sophisticated yeah. early man is described as being in the Bible. Uh, so Adam, as Sean said, had the intelligence to be able to name the animal kingdom, which would, would make him a scientist in today's day. Uh, he also, his kids were immediately doing very complicated things, right? Uh, Cain was someone who was growing crops. It's not easy to do. No. Right? Uh, it's not an easy thing to do. Uh, Abel was raising animals. He was already like a shepherd. Domesticating animals. Domesticating That's animals. important. 
That's incredible. Uh, Their grandkids were inventing musical instruments, on and on. Absolutely. And Mm -hmm. and, uh, metalworking, yeah. Metalworking, being artificers and things like that. So, yeah, ancient man was not as primitive as the modern scholars would tell you. And even modern scholars admit, too, look at Neanderthal glue. It still works. (laughs) I can barely get my dollar store glue to keep my plastic miniatures (laughs) together for two years. Yeah. And again, to Darwin's credit, this is very interesting, where he actually didn't believe that, which I thought was very fascinating. He points out that it's not really about someone's biology that dictates their intelligence, but it's their surroundings. So in other words, you'd be like, well, there are more primitive, quote unquote, races alive today, right? There are more primitive cultures alive today that if an archaeologist dug them up a thousand years from now, they might actually miscategorize when these people were alive, right? So I went to Afghanistan and everyone is still living in a mud house, you know, and they're driving on dirt roads and they're, you know, pooping in holes in the floor and they're, you know, you know, they they don't understand how water works. Yeah. And so someone a thousand years ago might excavate that culture and be like, there's no way that they lived at the same time that, you know, America and the West are building skyscrapers and developing microchips and things like that. But uh, yeah, they they were. So uh, part of a problem that modern scientists might have is they excavate a primitive looking culture and they say, oh, these people must have been this far back in the geological timeline. Well, maybe not. You know, maybe they subsisted at the same time as one of these more advanced cultures or civilizations. They were just more primitive in their culture and that has to do with their environment. But uh, yeah, no, it's a very good and interesting question for sure. Very good. Uh, well, Kat, thank you. Uh, what's Kat? Yes, the question. Thank you for that. <laughs> so I have to get, sometimes I get mixed up here. Uh, it's a question from from Taylan. This is this is a really this is a good question, a really interesting question. I'm looking forward to the discussion on this. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Oh, sorry, we're out of time. No, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> what are what are the possible minimum and maximum extents of sanctification? Now, if you allow me to just expand on this question. Now, okay. salvation is something that happens in a moment. We receive the, we receive Jesus as our savior, and we are saved. We become right before God. Hmm. Sanctification is the process where we're becoming more like Jesus, the old man's, you know, the old ways, and we've been sanctified. So his question is, what is the minimum amount that could happen? And what is the maximum? Could we get to a point where we're just like Jesus? And do we not have to become like Jesus at all? And what is the minimum maximum? What a great question. So how to get a D plus in the Christian life. <laughs> yes, D minus. And how to get a perfect. <laughs> now, um, there is an answer to the minimum sanctification. That's 1 Corinthians chapter 3, where it notes that he who builds on this straw, uh, hay, stubble, will be burned up on that day for the day will reveal it. It's in reference to the presence of God being like a consuming fire and how you build on your salvation, which was the point of the chapter, is basically recognizing there are things that will endure in the presence of God that you'll carry on to eternity, things like him. And things that aren't. The Mm. things that aren't done in him will be burned up and you will suffer loss. But it notes he himself will be saved yet as though through fire. So there is a way to enter eternal life, eternal fellowship with Jesus with nothing but Jesus, just the saving work of the Son. So sanctification is not a salvation issue. Can you say that? Okay. Yeah, I would say that a Christian that just falls horribly into sin, does not deal with their issues. Um, modern example, we would go with guys like Robbie Zacharias and the scandal surrounding him. Yeah. I wouldn't question his salvation, but I would know that his legacy took a huge hit because of the hypocrisy, the deception, and the abuse, and the manipulation that he committed in sexually 
accosting these women in uh, massage parlors. But the point of emphasis is he was saved by the grace of God, not by the goodness of his testimony. Yeah. So that's first off. There is such a thing as a D minus, but we don't recommend that. <laughs> <laughs> but if on the other hand we're going to jump the other stat, and this is a real big issue, uh, theosis orthodox groups would call it, achieving sinless perfection, Pentecostal groups would call it, these sort of mindsets that, you know, I've attained Christ-likeness. I, I'm embodying all the attributes of the Sermon on the Mount. I've worthy to be saved. I'm, um, take, I've fully taken hold of that which Christ took hold of me, mm -hmm. and so forth. That, oh, Sean, stop talking about me on the air. Yeah, <laughs> it's so embarrassing. That's not biblical. There is a clear and defined state that we note separate from Jesus <clears throat> that will always be a part of us, and I think the best biblical example against there being an A++ in sanctification <laughs> would be the Apostle Paul, who, if you read first, or Philippians chapter 3, rather, uh, as far as the strictures of the Pharisees, he was blameless. If there was anything externally you could hold against that guy ceremonially, you know, conductively, before and after his conversion to the Jewish and the non-Jewish communities, apart from the murder, he was blameless. But at the end of his life, when he was, or should have at least, achieved this sinless perfection and now was worthy of being called home, he calls himself in 2 Timothy chapter 4, 1 Timothy? It was 6 then, right? Chapter 1. Chapter 1. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, chief of sinners. It's in the Bible, New Testament. I remember him mentioning in 2 Timothy 4 as well, but we'll fall he back liked, on He liked thing. to talk about it. Yeah. <laughs> chief of sinners yeah. is the point. He went on and on about it all the time. Uh, he just talked all and on about <laughs> what a chief of sinners he was. The more no, sanctified yeah. he became, oddly enough, the more aware he was of his sin. Yeah. And it's odd to me then when you encounter people who <laughs> insist the more sanctified they become, the less aware of their sin they are. Right. That's the biblical conflict. Mm. No, absolutely. I, I think Blaise Pascal really helped me understand this, where you know he was a mathematician and a philosopher, and he had this great quote where he said, any number in the presence of infinity is annihilated. And I really like that because what he's getting at, there's many different levels because it's Pascal and he talks at like 50 different levels simultaneously. But <laughs> one of the levels to interpret that is when you look at God, God is infinite in all of his attributes, including his righteousness, which would be his correct character or his justice, if you want to put it that way. Um, if he's infinite, then how much righteousness must I accumulate to be like Christ? Infinite, infinite, right? And so let's put a numeric value on it. Let's say that every good deed that you do or every level or degree of sanctification that you achieve is worth a certain numeric level. Let's say it's a point or something like that. If you live like the best possible life that you could possibly live, and let's say you accumulate millions of points and the average person only accumulates like 10, you know, mm. that's a big difference, right? You are a lot better off than that person. However, how many more points does the person who have, has 10 million need to get in order to be like Christ, an infinite? Yeah. How much does the person who has only 10 points need to get in order to be like Christ, an infinite? Mm -hmm. <laughs> and so every number in the, in the presence of infinity, no matter how large, is annihilated, right? It, it, it's like it's not even in existence anymore. Yeah, there's so, no such thing as an infinity minus one. That's right, yeah. absolutely. So when Paul is getting better and better, which he was, right? He was becoming more like Christ. He was becoming more sanctified. The higher and higher he was realizing the mountain was. So, you know, in, mm -hmm. in Tucson, we have mountains, which is kind of cool. 
And sometimes when you're driving by like the Catalinas, you'd be like, oh, it's not that tall. You know, I remember when I was a teenager, some of my friends were like, hey, let's like climb Push Ridge, which is a, like, it's like a pretty famous hiking trail in Tucson. I know you like going on it every now and mm-hmm. then, the Linda Vista Trail. Yeah. And when you're driving by, you're like, oh, that's no big deal. <laughs> and then you start hiking the thing and yeah. you realize, oh my gosh, like I had no idea how big this mountain was. And then you how probably- How small just, my feet are. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> and then you probably just turn around and give up and you know uh, cry softly into your <laughs> sleep. But uh, you know- You have seen me up there, yeah. haven't you? <laughs> <laughs> but th- that's the problem is when you're looking at something from a distance, it doesn't appear as big or as grandiose as yeah. it actually is. Same with like the stars. I can't remember which astronomer pointed that out. Where actually the more clearly we see the stars, the more we realize how big they are and how far away they are. We used to estimate that, oh, they must be like, you know, kind of close to where the moon is and they're like really, really tiny, just specks in the sky compared to our moon. And then we realize, oh no, there's like whole solar systems and galaxies that we can only perceive as like a dot. Yeah. And they're millions of light years away, right? And until we were able to zoom in on them, we weren't able to see how far they really were and how vast they really were. That's God. Yeah. Right. The closer you get to God, the yeah. more in awe of him you become. Yeah. And as Sean said, that is how do you know you're actually becoming sanctified when you realize how unworthy you are, right? Yeah. If you're thinking like, man, I'm great, you're not becoming more sanctified. There's yeah. something wrong. Yeah. Uh, same with Solomon, right? The beginning of wisdom is fear of the Lord. Do not be yeah. wise in your own eyes. You think you're wise, you are the furthest from wise there ever is. Yeah. You think you're a fool, you're on the right path. Right. <laughs> you're, yeah. you're getting there. So wisdom, righteousness, it works the same way. God is infinite in these attributes. The closer to him you get, the more you're going to realize yeah. how far away you actually right. are. And it goes deeper to sanctification, I found. You know, first it's like, okay, I get it. Don't drink, don't smoke, you know, yeah. sleep around, got it. Christians yeah. don't do that. Don't damage. And then it just goes deeper yeah. to your, your motivations in things and yeah. these hidden things like, oh, my gosh, I am I thought I was doing okay. But, I, you know, the, the, the like you say, the more the closer, the more you grow in the Lord, the more you realize you need to grow. Mm-hmm. And these things kind of come out from under the rocks. But... Sean, thank you. Peter, thank you. We're out of time for today. Great, uh, great show. Thank you for your questions. We're back again tomorrow with uh, Sean will be back and uh, Pastor Scott as well. So you can take the rest of the week off, Peter. Okay, yeah. Spain, you've done enough. Appreciate it. You've done more than <laughs> enough. God bless you. Thank you for being part of Reason for Hope. We'll see you tomorrow. You've been listening to A Reason for Hope. Thank you again for joining us as we continue our journey through God's Word. One question of the heart at a time. Until we meet again, we would love to connect with you. You can text or email your questions to questionsforhope at gmail.com. You can also find out more about our ministry at calvarychristianfellowship.com. And be sure to join us next time on A Reason for Hope. A Reason for Hope is an outreach ministry of Calvary Christian Fellowship in Tucson, Arizona.